Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozar. Say hi, Kev. Hi. What are you doing this week? Well, I think if this episode is very bad, we'll have to t- time travel and do it over again. And I, so I hope we get it right the first time, because slingshotting around the sun sounds very hard. Yeah, it sounds like more effort than we really need to put in for that. Even though, of course, we are always dedicated towards the very best in quality when it comes to our podcast. And that means this week we are going to be covering Tomorrow is Yesterday. And as always, we're not doing it alone. So say hello, Sarah. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, It's uh, been fun to return to this episode. Good. Um, well, as, as we always do when it comes to our guests, we like to get a little bit of history and find out what your what your uh, experience with Star Trek is and how you came to it. So yeah, what's, what's your history with Star Trek? So when I was growing up, I used to go to the uh, Harvard Smithsonian Astrophysics Center sci-fi movie nights. And the only Star Trek I had encountered up until a few years ago was uh, the voyage home, um, which I loved and engaged with no other Star Trek after that point. Um, and then a few years ago, uh, my roommate and I moved in together and we were looking for television to watch together because we don't have a lot of similar television preferences. And she suggested watching Next Generation. So we started watching that. We spent about a year going through it. And then the pandemic hit and we watched all other Star Trek in existence uh, over the last few <laughs> years. Um, so for almost all of it, it was my first encounter with it. Um, but now I've watched everything and a lot of it twice. That's absolutely brilliant. I'm very happy to hear that you've managed to watch all of it. Was Was there a reason that you never went back to Star Trek after enjoying Star Trek for so much? I didn't really watch television as a child. Um, we rented movies on Saturday nights, but it wasn't really... There wasn't like a TV to turn on in my house that I could just go watch things on. So instead, I watched a lot of films, but not not a lot of TV episodes. And so that was, I, I've made up for that uh, for, for a lot of TV in the last few years, but I never remembered to go watch Star Trek. I, I watched a lot of Doctor Who um, as one of the first sort of TV shows that I went through, but but this was the first sort of return to Star Trek. Well, wow, that's actually, that's, that, that's really interesting. When you say Doctor Who, I assume you mean the 2005 uh, return of the show. I watched, yes. Uh, I did that in high school. And then I have a friend uh, who in college had watched all of Doctor Who already. And we watched a fair amount, but not a complete amount of the original Doctor Who. Okay, fair. Sorry, I didn't really mean to turn this into an interrogation. No! I'm just just really interested in how people come to these (laughs) things. (laughs) All right, right. that's our interview portion. (laughs) Yes, right. Well, um, moving back to our regularly scheduled uh, procedure for the podcast, um, Kev, do you care to give us our summary? All right. Uh, The Enterprise. uh, Cold Open in Media Rest shows up in 60s Earth. uh, 1969, I think, to be specific. Uh, The Air Force then tracks it down and notices the UFO. Uh, While trying to defend itself, the Enterprise accidentally scoops up a pilot, 
John Christopher. And John Christopher, they realize they can't send back to Earth because he could use his knowledge of the future of, that he's observed on the Enterprise to change the course of history in a dramatic way that would erase things from existence. Uh, they also learn from Christopher that they need to recover film from his airplane that photographed the Enterprise. So Kirk and Sulu beam down. Um, they wind up accidentally kidnapping someone else. They get captured. There's a lot of fighting. Uh, eventually, John Christopher and Spock and uh, McCoy also, I think, uh, or maybe not McCoy beaming down, but anyways, they they all manage to get the film and save Kirk, and everyone is tied up in a neat bow, except for John Christopher himself, until they realize their method to get home, slingshotting around the sun, the first, uh, I believe, many times it's going to show up, um, will also return Christopher to right before he noticed the Enterprise, and everything will be set back in place. And they do that, and everything is set back in place. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, good. Um, so there's an, a number of things about this episode which need to be addressed. Obviously, the first time that we ever uh, get time travel in Star Trek, apart from anything else. Um, and there's a lot of uh, culture clash comedy, which was also going to go on to be a feature of the show, but which we've never actually had up until this point. So it's, it's, it's sort of been interesting and influential episode in some ways but let's get some some general thoughts out of the way first um sarah how, how did you find this one i liked it i i wish <laughs> such passion <laughs> yeah. it, we'd gotten to see more of the world that they were going into i think it's i think there's something fun about star trek doing an episode that's two years in the future um or yeah two years in the future and uh, mm-hmm. and I wanted to see them, which I guess later Star Trek sort of realized and and tried to do a little bit more. I wanted to see them in the world of the near future, walking around and looking at everything. And instead, we get just the inside of a military base, really. And it's a little disappointing. Like You want to know what they're imagining that's going to look like and you never really get it but i thought it was kind of fun and i think that there's something i like that they do this whole thing they they bring john christopher on you sort of think this is the plot and then they accidentally bring more people on part of the way through like i think it complicates itself in a way that i think sometimes early trek doesn't necessarily do enough yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I think, took the words out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> yes, it's it's an episode that really struggles to find a second gear. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good ideas here, and I think I mean I think it's significant that you said you started with Star Trek with the fourth movie because that this is the precedent to that. This is absolutely they're back in time. They are interacting with a past time, roughly contemporaneous to when the episode was shot or movie was shot, and then they have to find a way home and it's just kind of i mean that movie is it has more runtime for sure but it's just so much better it's so much richer it's so much more interesting it's so much funnier Mm -hmm. it has all these different sort of ways to get more emotion out of you and this it's like it's so hung up on its premise which i guess because and this is going back to star trek being like this archetypical the first of its kind to do a lot of these things kind of thing but yeah, it 
it doesn't really know what to do beyond just the idea that they're back in time. Like beaming up the second guy is great, but that it becomes a running gag when you beam up a third and a fourth and a fifth person. And that was fun. Or like the drama around John Christopher, whether or not he's going to be trapped home or on the ship is interesting, but then they don't dive much in the psychology of that. And then it's all tied up in a, very tidy package at the very end of the episode anyways without any like dr- true drama there so yeah i there's a lot of great material here that dz fontana was working with and then i just don't think she or roddenberry's notes or whatever um really found the next sort of level to take it yeah i think that's fair i think if there was a word i would use to describe this episode it's probably cramped it feels mm-hmm. a little bit closed in. Like um, Sarah, you were saying that you know they, they spend time uh, either on the Enterprise or just on this like military base, but it's not even really a military base. It's like two rooms in a corridor. Yeah. Like even if mm-hmm. we had like, a bit of location footage where we'd seen them like jumping into a jeep and driving between buildings or something, it would give it a sense of place. But it's really clearly a very kind of cheap episode where we have all the standing sets and then just like uh, another set, which could come from just any generic TV show of the 1960s. And that does give it this kind of weirdly cramped feeling. And it's a shame because I actually think the cold open is really effective. I think the, 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 the flight, like seeing the enterprise, like hanging in the atmosphere like that in amongst the clouds, that's a really terrific way of opening your episode like we we know nothing and again like it, it seems obvious now in lights of things like um like um star trek 4 but there had never been an episode like this and it comes out of nowhere that's fantastic that's such a great hook to drag you into the episode and then the rest of it just kind of i mean it's fine but it just sort of faffs around a bit really i've, I've watched a lot of old british science fiction and I've watched a few episodes of Sapphire and Steel where they clearly had no budget whatsoever for sets. And that's what this mm-hmm. feels like a little bit that they they blew their whole budget on the beginning. And then they were told, you know, you can use these hallways and these storage rooms and that's it. And it's just a little, it's a little disappointing. Yeah. I, just, 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 sorry, I, just before we go on, I just... I just have to tell you how much I love the fact that you have seen Sapphire and Steel. That makes me love you so, so much. That's just, I love Sapphire and Steel deeply and, and, and with every ounce of my soul. And I'm so, so happy that you've seen it. So sorry, Kev, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I just, I just had to mention that. It's, but I couldn't tell you a single plot that happens on it. All I can, t- I, what I really. Oh no, that's, that's really not the point of Sapphire right, and Steel. Right, exactly. It's all atmosphere. It's all about the presence. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it someday and make you proud. Um, but yeah, I guess what I was going to say was it, it does have that very like cramped feeling. And I don't know, you just wish the scope would expand a little more. It's so frustrating that all these like in that cold open, like there's moments in this episode that are so great. The cold open, I think, is the first cold open we have that's not just Kirk talking to a recorder sitting in his chair. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's a couple other things like that, but like this is such a more dramatic cold open than at least the average, if not the first one to really be fully in media res like this. And to start with that, and then after our opening titles, 
um, have sort of Kirk and the rest of the crew like getting up from their chairs, looking disheveled, like, oh, what happened? It's it's such an immediate gripping opening that like modern TV is very loath to do, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Like if I saw that, like The Last of Us or some whatever open like that, I'd be like, oh, great, this is some energy that I'm not used to in a, these kinds of shows. It's, yeah. So yeah, it's it's a very, it's more than modern opening. It's a very like gripping opening and it's just can't live up to that promise. And even some of the other great scenes, like talking about John Christopher's fate and him having like these crises of morals, or there's like a really good fight scene with Kirk and a bunch of guards. Like those are like great gulps of water in a desert of like, okay. A desert might even be too strong that like evoking imagery of like suffering. It's fine to watch this episode. Like the rest of it just kind of hums along and you don't really think much of it. But the standout scenes just really sort of drive home. It's like, oh, this could have been so much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish it. I, I just, yeah, it's, oh, God. It's, I think we're going to be saying this a lot during this episode, but it just, everything feels like it should just be pushed that little bit further. Um, I think John Christopher is a really great character, and Roger Perry does a good job with him. Like, he's convincing, and I like the idea of Kirk talking to him as an equal, as somebody who serves, who's in a service, a military service. It's not completely clear at this point what that service is as far as Kirk's concerned, but it's very clear what it is as far as uh, John Christopher is concerned. And that's a lovely little way of getting a, a, a connection between the characters. And I think that way that... Um, Christopher is able to uh, relate to Kirk uh, in exactly like he behaves exactly the way Kirk would behave if the situations were reversed. And I think that's really smart scripting. I think that's one of the one of the best kind of things that uh, DC Fontana manages to, to understand about these two characters. They are basically exactly the same. There's no actual bad guy in this episode and that's also really unusual for star trek there's no aliens to be fought there's no unconvincing lizard men there's no romulans it's just fate it's just time that they're up against again that's a slightly sapphire and steel conceit um but that's what they're fighting it's time that is is, is the issue not not people and the way that john christopher responds again is exactly the way that kirk would respond if he was in the same situation so kirk can understand why christopher has to follow his duty he understands why he has to report what he's seen it's all very very logical and i think for all that much of the script is a bit kind of ho-hum that scaffolding goes a long way to convince us both of the world that we're in and why these characters work the way that they do yeah and we don't have to spend a lot of time with John Christopher not believing that Kirk is also trying to work within not, I guess his own best interests, but within the world's best interests. Like this isn't, this isn't an episode where we spend a lot of time with him having a big misunderstanding, which is just not that interesting beyond the first couple minutes. They're just at odds with their goals, which is, a way more interesting sort of relationship between the two of them. Yeah. I think it is very smart how John Christopher is played as the protagonist of his own story. Mm-hmm. Like he's very much like the John Christopher show who could have been airing 
uh, also in the 60s about an Air Force pilot who encounters a strange phenomenon. It's such a, and this would be like another episode in his life. It's, it's such a good way to make him feel like, sure, like Kirk and Spock and McCoy and et cetera are the stars of this show, but the way that character is so well fleshed out, his actions are, his reactions are complex enough and his place in the story is complex enough that he feels like he truly is a fully realized character. I think that is such a great, uh, just the thing that Fontana does. Well, and I do think the casting helps a lot as well because Roger Perry had been in the Air Force. He had been in Mm -hmm. the Air Force in the 1950s, I think it was. So that also helps him feel convincing. And, you know, that character has to work for this episode to be successful. And that's one of the things that I think the episode really gets right you know, basically Roger Perry has to stand in for an entire military installation. In fact, basically an entire military industrial complex. You know, we're only getting a few really cheap corridors and a couple of tape bags. That's as far as our military base is going to get. So Roger Perry really has to convince in the role to make us believe all this other stuff lies behind it. And the funny thing is, that's a much more challenging task now in 2023 when we're recording this than it was in 1967 because in 1967 there were so many shows about the military and the air force and some of that was world war ii hangovers and some of it was kind of contemporary and all the rest of it but that would have been something which was much more kind of familiar much more kind of in the zeitgeist i suppose of of the late 60s than it would be now and yet he's still incredibly effective now and and as somebody who has to act as that stand-in the conviction that he brings to the role papers over the vast amount of budgetary saving (laughs) corridors and and a couple of rooms that, that that we're faced with so i really do think roger perry deserves all the credit in the world here definitely i also going back to that opening scene the cold open one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching it, and I, I Googled around for this a little bit and I, I actually couldn't find it, um, is that I was wondering where it sat in the lineup of television shows because it felt like it was positioning itself within viewers' expectations of a slightly different show um, in a way that I really liked, in a way where I thought, okay, there are going to be all these other television shows where you're going to see the air force and the military and all these different places. Um, Maybe people watching this are going to sort of, this is an automatic trigger. They don't need the rest of the trappings. If what they have is this sort of placement scene. Um, And then we can get into, Oh, it's star Trek. Um, Which I think is probably part of what was going on, even though it still works, it just doesn't maybe have the same effect now. Yeah, I, I don't know if the two shows about to say are exactly contemporaneous, but um, like, like a Mission Impossible or, uh, I guess Mash is a slightly different beast than this, but still, like, there's definitely military drama on television. I think by this point, that's a great call, and so yeah, it's. Even if you saw the bumper right beforehand at NBC saying, and now Star Trek or whatever, um, I think your expectations still would have been shifted to like, or at least you were, yeah, you're right. You'd be familiar with the trappings of this other show that the Enterprise is being dropped into. 
mm-hmm. and that goes a long way. It almost feels like a crossover episode with a TV show mm-hmm. you might have just missed. Oh, yeah. Well, you would have had a lot of shows like uh, Mikhail's Navy, I think was early 60s. Hogan's Heroes mm-hmm. would have been about. Um, so you had those kind of shows and they're not they're not Air Force shows. And obviously this is this is uh, specifically using a character who's in the, the US Air Force. But it's 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 of the same flavor let's say it's kind of a military peop- uh, a military kind of show you're used to the way that people work with rank so you know we have that scene where kirk is being interrogated and he gets sentenced to like 200 years in prison yeah that ought to be about right and all that kind of stuff so even if those shows aren't exactly a direct parallel it yeah like i said it's something which is in the zeitgeist so there were there were plenty of shows around at that point that that would definitely have have provided that sort of touchstone that the audience would have expected i think it just goes back to how seamless this whole world feels while at the same time like it feels seamless but it almost means that they don't put the effort into putting more specifics in it's a kind of a i guess a contradiction there but because it can almost yada yada this sort of military trappings it decides to Mm -hmm. fully yada yada it (laughs) and besides the captain (laughs) captain john christopher who as discussed, is a pretty good character. Uh, everything else about this base and the people in it are just entirely anonymous. I did think it was funny to see. Star Trek has such a specific look, like the sets and mm. the costumes and things. And I was really enjoying the difference between, they'd clearly just gotten Air Force type uniforms or or pilot uniforms from the 60s. The difference in how realistic those looked to the enterprise uniforms and i i i'm i wish we'd gotten to see a little bit more of them trying to sort of to do a a set a contemporary set but with the aesthetics of star trek and i can see why they i mean i think partially it's just money but i i also think it would have been fun to see the sort of continuation of that aesthetic aesthetic but in the 1960s and yeah i and i think i mean and as discussed and with the fourth movie and with like other episodes of the show even that will do time travel like when they get into the more specifics of the time period it's so much stronger and this yeah it, it has a good air force uniform that's pretty much it um right so yeah you really are sort of craving a little more again, like specificity from all of this. I would also like to point out that in terms of the contemporary setting, and I know that this is something that we regularly bump up against on this podcast. And so here we go again. Women serving on a spaceship always, always requires some sexy saxophone music straight out of a (laughs) porno movie. (laughs) And this one, is no exception. Um, so it's one of those, like you said, Kev, there's like that weird contradiction going on where things are incredibly progressive and also incredibly regressive. We have the weird look of Kirk's velour uniform next to the genuine like Air Force base, the uh, uh, Air Force uniform that, that John Christopher is using. And then we have this, yeah, this, I, I think she's an ensign, like walking down the corridor and, and, like Christopher turns and looks at her and oh you have women on the show and the only thing it's lacking is a sort of <laughs> for the for the, the scene to be complete you know it's it's such uh 
it's such a weird thing and it feels so out of keeping with the rest of the show but like like you said kev it, there's so much shorthand going on here that they can't they can't break out of it so for all the all the really great scenes we get all these kind of like really lazy kind of cliches it would be so easy to imagine like that corridor scene with the, the ensign walking down and Christopher walking like that could be, that could have come out Sergeant Bilko or something like that as well. It's it's so weirdly backwards looking when so much of the rest of this episode is kind of forwards looking. Deeply ironic that that feels like the one sixties specificity that we're looking for is the treatment. <laughs> yeah, it, it is unfortunate. Although that brings me to maybe my favorite little piece in this episode, which is the ship's computer that now has a. 40 personality or a personality <laughs> oh, of some oh dear. sort. And I mean, it's so stupid, but I, I liked one of the things about this episode, I think is that it starts to drop into comedy as the episode goes on. And that was one of the moments where someone just decided in the middle of the episode that it was going to sort of drop briefly into just jokes. And I like that a lot. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a really goofy joke, but I like the idea that somebody fixed the ship's computer and now it has more more of a personality and they haven't had time to get it fixed. Like, that's funny. Um, I also... I spent a little bit of time looking this up. Uh, I think it's interesting that the that John Christopher thinks it's interesting that the ship's computer voice is a woman when in real life um sort of all computer voices seem to be women um that that's remarkable then that they hadn't sort of established that as something also i guess in the mirror universes uh computer voices are men in star trek uh or they are generally and part of what i'm curious about is is when that split happened and what exactly caused it even though i don't think anyone necessarily has thought that much about it yeah that is it is interesting to think about like a woman computer voice throwing him off because I guess the only computer voice in popular culture at the time is the male voiced Hal in two thousand one. So I don't. I mean, I, maybe there's other ones, but like I don't know. Besides Star Trek, then if Star Trek was the first female computer, then if Hal, I, mean, I don't know. It it it's pretty much just the full first fully voiced computer. I mean, yeah. um, two thousand one is nineteen sixty nine. Oh, it's after. So it's. Yeah, so it's a good couple of years in the future. Um, so it, yeah, how has not happened by the time we have this? Oh, my mistake. Then yeah, huh? That's interesting. But yeah, I back to the bit itself. Uh, I like the one sour note is the fact is the emphasis on it being a female voice and like, well, because it's a woman, it's acting like this. And instead of just embracing the fun of it's a personality that acts like this regardless of gender. It's funny that it's flirty, not that it's female, mm-hmm. but like, it's still a good bit. It's like a bit at a Futurama or something. Right. Like you could put that in a comedy show. Now a computer reprogrammed the flirty and it would still like score big. So yeah, it's I, I like, even if sort of the core of that joke is a little like, it's not the right way to go about telling that joke. It's, it's such a good gag that I'm I'll give it a pass. I, I think that was a funny scene. It also expands the world in a way mm-hmm. that I wish the rest of the episode did for more things. So so I mean it expands the world in that 
they had to get their ship fixed somewhere and the people fixing it, it, it not an all female planet, but a, a like a matriarchal society um, decided that their computer didn't have enough personality. Like that's such a great little moment in trying to explain to someone from the sixties, what the Star Trek world is like is that you're, you're dealing with all of these personalities and it's sort of vaguely similar, but not quite similar. And I don't know. I really liked that. I liked that. I liked that sort of world expansion detail. Oh, for all we're bemoaning the lack of like sixties world building and the time period most episodes set in, um, mm-hmm. there is more 23rd century world building in that one scene than there's been in most episodes of the show so far. Yeah. It's, there's <laughs> so much detail in that little aside. And it's what, it's what I wish we got for the rest of the episode. I wish we oh, got, yeah. and I, and I know that that's partially that it's hard to world build the present, mm-hmm. but that's what's fun about setting an episode two years in the future is that you get the sort of, oh, the Irish Reconciliation Act of, of 2024 or whatever. Like you get this, this sense that the future has new details for you to discover. I, I wish that there were more details in the past to discover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's that weird tonal balance that the episode struggles to strike is, is one of the reasons that I think a lot of it comes across as a bit kind of, it's all right. Um, and it, it just has that sense that I wish it had picked a tone. Like, like you guys were talking about the comedy. And I wish that this had just been a, like, a straightforward comedy yes. episode or a straightforward drama mm-hmm. or a straight, or like a straightforward, like military, whatever. It, it, it keeps switching between the two different or three different kind of modes. So we've got the, the sci-fi drama and the enterprise. Oh no, will they be able to get back to their time? Oh, wow. And then we have the military base kind of infiltration. Nice use of Sulu. I have to say that it's really nice to see Sulu just being like dropped in as, as this kind of dependable character, but we've got all that going on. And then we've got the comedy of the, the guy being beamed up to the ship or, misunderstandings or how long Kirk's going to be, you know, in prison for all this kind of stuff. It, it, it just needs to pick a side. And I think that's ultimately what ends up undermining this episode a little bit. It, it's a little bit of everything, but it's, it's not any one thing. And it, it just really needs to pick a side to, to land. Like the comedy is mostly good. The drama and the enterprise is fine. That's perfectly serviceable kind of sci-fi and like the whole, like, infiltrating the base and all that kind of stuff is is pretty good as well um it's just that none of those things quite managed to slot together to to form a convincing whole yeah it almost feels like it feels like those sort of alien encounter stories where people talk about having been abducted but they're only in like a single room and all they see is a glowing light like it almost feels like the opposite of that they go to earth in the 1960s but mm-hmm. you don't get this the sort of full world of what that would look like 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 they're trying to tell people they went there and didn't see anything and barely met anybody but as a sort of episode i guess so yeah it doesn't it feels like nobody committed to anything that's a very good way of putting it exactly that yeah like i was also thinking what you were think saying earlier jg about just really wishing that like it it picked a stronger tone whatever it was 
I would have loved to see the farce version of this, especially when we have like the second guy gets abducted. And mm-hmm. the interrogation scene is also a standout scene that I forgot to mention earlier. Like, I think, I mean, we'll do our little Shatner corner, I guess, in a moment. But I think it's such like a good, like Kirk's repartee is very strong in that scene. But then Christopher's dilemma is like really strong and could you could hinge a whole dramatic episode on it that was very like effective and emotionally heart breaking and yeah it doesn't decide to really pick a strong emotion in any direction it just sort of sits there and it's it's frustrating it's absolutely frustrating and yet there's odd details mm-hmm. that they get right which resonate incredibly well i think it, it's such a small moment but when kirk and sulu are down in the base and uh they're looking at like the the tape banks for the computer and they want to turn it on. I think it's, it's I can't remember if it's Kirk or Sulu. Um, turns around and said, oh, no, don't turn them on because it'll, it'll make the devil's own noise because these computers are so old and so loud. And that's brilliant. That's such a good detail, such a good piece of writing from DC Fontana because it's, it's looking at what was then contemporary society through the eyes of somebody from the 23rd century. It's, it's such a small little thing. But that's such a great detail. And the episode is crying out for more of those kind of moments, I think, because they are the ones that really start to nail down that specificity. And what hurts the episode is that there are actually one or two times like that that they get it right. And it just makes you think, oh, there should be so much more of that. Like, there's a perfect opportunity. Like, Kev, you mentioned the fight scene um outside the dark room and that's a great little scene but again there's there's so much opportunity just prior to that for them to kind of have that specificity oh this is where they used to develop the film and they had this really ridiculously you know old-fashioned way of of processing images that looks laughable to us from the 2030s like it doesn't need to be that clunky but it's it's another thing to think it's there You've got it. You've got exactly, but it's just not quite expanded on in the way that it needs. And and yeah, just having those, having the one or two times where they do get it right, just kind of throws into sharp relief the times that they kind of miss it. Uh, there's a very fun behind the scenes story I found looking this up on Memory Alpha, where uh, John Perry wanted to take one of the uh, crew shirts with him because he thought it was very comfortable, and um, he. <laughs> He knew he would have to steal it, basically. He couldn't ask to take it. So, and then he chickened out and did not steal it. And says, and then after he saw Star Trek become a phenomenon, he regrets, ah, I was there, Brie. I could have had a, a wonderful prop of this thing. And But I think that sort of emphasizes the character as well. It's like a almost a metaphor for what's going on. He's drawn into this world, and he's so, like, accepting of it. And, like, yeah, he... It, it's what fits so well, like you were saying. And yeah, it's such a good character. And you just wish everything else was that well drawn. <laughs> Do we want to talk? Uh, because I invoked it earlier. I feel like we can't end the episode without talking about Shatner's performance, as we do nearly every week on this podcast. Uh, he's, like I said, the interrogation scenes are the standout one. And he's really good in that. I like that scene a lot. Shatner's great in this episode. And it, he has to switch between a lot of modes here. Yes. He has his uh, sort of comedy mode. He has his drama with uh, Christopher. 
you know, he has the standard Starship Captain stuff. There's there's a sort of fair amount that he has to draw on, and I think I think he does a really good job. Again, it's not a flashy performance, and I think if you're thinking of William Shatner's great performances in Star Trek, this is probably not one of the ones that would come to mind. But it is really effective for what it is because he's, again, ever so slightly... Again, it's so hard to use this word when describing William Shatner, but anyway. um, He's ever so slightly underplaying. And and particularly the way that he underplays in the scenes with uh, Roger Perry is is really nice. It, It lends him lens kirk a very sort of sympathetic ear that that understanding that i talked about before that 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 sort of bridges the character of john christopher and captain kirk is really really helped i mean the scripting is is very good but it's really helped by the way that william shatner doesn't lean on his lines and gives roger perry the space to be able to take the center stage i think kev you said you know this is really uh, you know it's really John Christopher's story that Star Trek has intruded into is a genre collision rather than the other way around, rather than it being a Star Trek story, which, which you know, is, is then about this, this guy that gets caught up in it. And that's really crucial. But the way that William Shatner plays his role in this really is so important to that being the right way around. And, and he's just great in this. I, he, again, it, it's not flashy, but it's such a lovely performance and it lends so much credibility to the script. Yeah, it's, it's funny given Shatner's reputation that he actually truly does know when to play understated, when to play second, at least at this point in time, <laughs> play second fiddle when need be. <laughs> and yeah, just sort of quietly let this other character take over. And of course, he'll his ego is still satisfied by the big fight scene he gets and the interrogation scene. And he gets to close the episode with his wonderful narration or whatever. But yeah, you're right. In, in those scenes with Perry, that's what sort of emphasizes that feeling of the sort of, it, it helps Perry feel like a more fleshed out character because Shatner as Kirk is deferring to him. I just really enjoyed the, speaking of other jokes, the uh, extended chicken soup uh moment where i I don't remember who the character is he's also beamed up and um requests chicken soup and it just appears behind him in the replicators and uh it's so goofy and i i like it when star trek just plays goofy it's goofy and it's also like what we want more from this episode which is like the culture clash of 60s and yeah. 2360s or whatever it is. Um, yeah, the 20th and 23rd century. It's like fun to see those little moments that are so rich. And, but yeah, and then the contrast is you can't remember his name. It's because his name is generic officer McOfficer. It's not, <laughs> he's not a character. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's all these great specific points and you just wish there's no specific thread connecting them. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that is the problem with the episode. But I also think, you know, early, and I know it's not quite early Trek in the grand scheme of original series, but it's interesting to watch them. Mm -hmm. You can tell, like, learn in real time. Like, I can so see them watching this episode and thinking, oh, here's what we missed. Mm -hmm. And getting to go back and do that again They've in other episodes. So... It's sort of interesting for that. 
Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, doing this, granted it in erring order because that's the easiest order to follow along with, but, you know, which is loosely enough production order. We worked through like about a dozen episodes at the stop, at the start, rather. That um, was definitely the show feeling itself out, not knowing what its tone is, not knowing how to write its characters very specifically. And then you hit Balance of Terror, and then it all snaps into focus. And I think mm-hmm. since then, we've been on a good run of episodes where even if the episode itself isn't great, people, the writers now know how to write for Star Trek. And yeah. I think this is another Growing Pains episode than it is like a fully in control episode. But you're right, like the Growing Pains, it would help them write better episodes down the line featuring time travel, featuring um, dramatically ironic situations, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's kind of a necessary stepping stone, I think into a future as i understand it yeah it's a learning curve there's no doubt about it and yeah like i said before it's the first time they've ever attempted anything like this so of course it's not going to be perfect and of course future episodes and indeed movies are going to be able to refine that template and refine that technique which first gets aired here so if this isn't perfect that's fine but the fact that this is a well that they keep returning to also speaks highly of this episode If this episode hadn't worked, if it had bombed, then they would never have gone back to do more time travel episodes. They would never have gone back to do more culture clash comedy. But they do. And indeed, one of the very best regarded films is exactly this template. So, you know, they've really latched onto something that works here. And if this episode isn't exactly perfect, it's it's more than good enough to sort of justify those kind of returns and, and to find a whole new way of telling Star Trek stories. I mean, that seems like, sounds like a perfect summation into giving a, a number grade and summing it all up. So since, oh, well, Sarah, how about you start with a score out of 10, what you would give this episode? I think probably a six and a half. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed rewatching it and I didn't get bored. I didn't think like, oh no, we're sort of still stuck in this, but I wanted so much more from it. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe in a 20 point scale with half, half points in it. I don't believe in half measures. So I'll round, <laughs> I'll round that up to a seven, but yeah, Great. same, same idea. Um, it's, there's such good concepts. And I think what saves it from being a six or a five is there are so many good standout points and moments but it is still overall just a fairly solid and average episode outside of those moments i'm going to agree with sarah i'm going to give it six and a half i i and for the reasons that you've both mentioned it's fine it's good it shouldn't it should and could have been pushed further and isn't so that's a shame but it's 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 good for what it is it needs to be a little bit more it's fine yeah six and a half all right Well, I think with that, we can probably wrap up this episode and we can move on to recommendations. So, Sarah, you're our guest, so of course, uh, you go first. Um, What would you like to recommend for us this week? Uh, Well, two things. One, I'm just going to blanket recommend this because I never get to recommend it, which is um, the novels of E.M. Forster. It is fully, where I guess it's mostly unrelated to Star Trek, Um, but I think he's a great writer and... He's written one of the first science fiction stories possibly ever called The Machine Stops. I don't think it's as good as his actual novels, but um, it's really interesting. And it's interesting how much he thinks about the ways that people interact with technology in the Edwardian era. 
and sort of how that translates to now. Um, and my other recommendation is getting really into the Academy Awards, which are coming up <laughs> and which I think are fun every year. And there's a, it has its own little ecosystem and uh, the um, it's all in the middle of, of award season right now. Yeah. My take on the Academy Awards is it's a ridiculous institution. It's weird to grade um, films on a, like a object, like try to make an objective measure of them like that. The votes never really make sense. The, <laughs> there's a lot of issues with them as well. And the ceremonies are always overlong and bloated. And I have so much fun in the lead up and watching them every year. It's, I love it so much. I never take it away from me. Um, this ridiculous process that means nothing. It's it's just, it's a lot of fun. So I agree. I co-sign that. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, Kef, what have you got for us this week? Uh, this week, I'm going to recommend the novel Future Feeling by Joss Lake. It's a hard one to describe. It is, I mean, it's on the surface about uh, a trans man who tries to curse another trans man and winds up backfiring and instead cursing a third trans man. And this curse is a very like non-specific like depression relating to um, being in the closet and pre-transitioning depression, uh, putting the putting who the person who receives it in a state back there. And so the first two wind up having to work together to bring this third one who is the sort of accidental bystander in this sort of proxy war uh, back to his full self. And already there's a lot of like ambiguity and like weird mysticism, fantasy and science fiction elements at play. It's just, it's a very surreal novel. Um, It plays fast and loose with like a continuity and uh, world building in a way that's very fresh and fun. And it's not perfect, but there's so much interesting to it. And also it's just like, you don't get much trans fiction like this. That is very like, experimental but also very accessible and fun um and not about suffering i mean there's a little there's dramatic parts there is a little bit of sadness there as you can probably tell from the premise but it's not just like i don't know the like i always forgot dallas buyers club or um what's it like the crying game like it's not something like as over dramatic as that it is just an a very fun light on its feet kind of surreal i guess it having not having only read passages from ulysses it's kind of like that i don't know i don't i feel like if i were to read like infinite jest or something it sounds like how people describe something like that in that same sort of very um light surreal tone but uh yeah it's it's a very fascinating book i had a great time reading it Phenomenal, thank you. Um, because I'm exceedingly pretentious, Ulysses is my favorite novel, so I'm very glad to hear that mention of the podcast. I'll read it. I'll um, read it in full someday for sure. L- listen, it, it's fine. Life is short enough. I'm not going to necessarily say that you have to, but I, I did love it. Anyway, um, God, I wish my offering was was uh, even half as uh, interesting or cerebral as that, but it's not. Instead, I'm going to recommend 1899, which is the Netflix. Um, sci-fi supernatural um you know take your pick uh tv show Uh, it's been a bit of a darling because it's produced by the same people um uh, who produced dark uh which is a 
phenomenal piece of science fiction. I absolutely love Darth. It's brilliant. Um, I don't know that 1899 is quite up to that standard, but it is incredibly engrossing. It's only one season. It's already been canned by Netflix because, you know, it's Netflix. Um, about a, a ship which is uh, allegedly sailing between Europe and America um, and gets into all sort of uh, twisty, turny, sci-fi slash supernatural slash something else uh, shenanigans. It's a really lovely series. I thoroughly enjoyed it. For anyone that loves Star Trek or Doctor Who, Sapphire and Steel, um, anything in that sort of neck of the woods, it's, it's just absolute catnip. Uh, it's fantastic cast. Uh, nominally, it stars uh, Emily Beecham, um, but it's mostly an ensemble cast, and they're all just fantastic. There's a few uh, people who uh, turned up in Dark as well who are ported over. Uh, a few people that I've never really seen before. Uh, Lucas Toninson as a character called Crester. Um, I've never seen him in anything before, but he's just outstanding as a sort of conflicted gay man on board the ship. Uh, the the captain is played by Andreas Peistman. I hope my pronunciation is okay there. And it's just this brilliant, beaten down, kind of weathered character who's just sort of crushed by so much and yet still has a spark of life in him it's just there's so much detail in the world and the the, the way that it's put together surprisingly large amount rep of uh, queer representation in it as well uh, it's just just a really thoroughly enjoyable show it all goes a bit you know, by the time it gets to the final episode, I don't want to say too much because it would be a shame to spoil it. Um, but it's, it, I'm assuming it's not a show that's ever going to be resurrected. I don't think anybody else is going to pick it up. But for a one shot, uh, kind of one and done, it's it's great. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's extremely well produced and very, very atmospheric. Um, so yeah, if you just fancy checking out something um, that's, you know, not too demanding, but which will definitely pull you in and get its get its hooks into you. Then, then I'm going to go with eighteen ninety nine. Fantastic! That all sounds so good. Lovely. Well, and then I think we can sort of move towards our conclusion. Um, and Sarah, is there anything you would like to plug or anything you would like to represent whilst you're here? Not really. Um, this was really fun. Yeah. Um, if more people want to talk to me about Star Trek, uh, I'm always interested. Oh, how I'm on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter as um, at Harriet Vane, also uh, V A N E A L S O. Um, it's a new handle, so I never remember what it is. Yeah, I was just about to prompt you for like, where can they talk to you? <laughs> yeah, so that's great. And uh, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. I'm on Twitter at K E V K O E S E R Kev Kozer. And I also frequently guest about once a month on the podcast Total Massacre about action movies. Um, JG's writings can be found at www.jgmcquarry.scott, jgmcquarrie.scott. And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, reviewing the Beatles track by track. Please like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it to help other people find it. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us this week, Sarah. Thanks so much. This was really fun. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. That, that our guests enjoyed is the most important thing of all. Mm -hmm. But we can wrap this episode up there for now. Next week, we will be carrying on through our first season review. And we will be, well, we're going to be having a court martial. But until then, keep talking.